This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And with, brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Consulting Mundanist. The Skirple Affair. Heist Flicks 101. And the Takeover of the Bank of the United States. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game, without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The Rattle of Dice, The Thump of Miniatures, The Crunch of Doritos, and The Benevolent Gaze of Peter Frampton Coming Alive welcome us once more into the Gaming Hut. And look what miniatures we have here, Robin. Why, it's the rare three. Oh, no, it's just a reporter. <laughs> it's a Demogorgon, but you mean, when you take off the Demogorgon's head, it's a it's a real estate developer. It's a real estate developer. Then there's a regular, regular Doritos, not even the nacho cheese, really. Oh, and Dice Sixes. That'll be... Exciting. Oh, and it's just hey, the regular. Don't you knock the D sixes. All right. The anyway, very heart and soul of Gumshoe. That's true. They are. You can build so much on a D six. Why, golly jeepers, he said. Imagine punching air with hand. Uh <laughs> anyhow, that particular labored setup welcomes us, as always, to the gaming hut, and in this case, to uh, I suppose a jump off from our previous Scooby-Dooing question and our previous Scullying question to the larger question of, in a supernatural campaign, a game that is intended to have the supernatural in it, and I suppose the standard is the horror game, as you might have adduced from my reference to Scooby-Doo and X-Files, but it could also, I suppose, be in an F20, but the question is, if you have a game in which the supernatural is the natural, how do you pull off the mundane, the normal, the so to speak, normal natural. Right. I, I guess an ideal example of this is Karnacki the Ghostfinder, right? Where yeah. half the times and half of the William Ho- Hodgson stories, he finds ghosts, and the other half the time he finds fake ghosts. And one time he finds a fake ghost and a real ghost. Well, that's that's mixing it up. In Horse of the Invisible. I mean, yeah. he finds the fake ghost, and I think he finds indications there may have been a real ghost, but it's not what he's there for. Right. And I if think it seems like, you know... William Hope Hodgson's players are like rolling their eyes because the ghost turned out to be fake again. And so he's throwing them a bone. 
So the trick is to, um, how to make players not feel disappointed when, uh, in, uh, you know, a Cthulhu game, the, it just turns out there's, uh, you know, gangsters creating a hoax and the, uh, rituals out in the woods are just a, a rumor that they've been spreading in order to, uh, uh, pawn off their, uh, hits of their bootlegging rivals as, uh, the actions of evil cultists or, uh, in, you know, a, a modern day game when the crop circles turn out to be, you know, just guys playing a, a prank and the murder, uh, in the middle of the crop circle, well, that's a domestic dispute. So how do you make the, uh, the mysteries, uh, that, you know, what the discovery is emotionally satisfying if it turns out to be less than meets the eye? Because of course, traditionally, in a uh, horror scenario, it, uh, things turn out to be um, much worse than they appear in the mirror. So w- what is your, your first trick for accomplishing this? Well, the first thing that you need to have with a, an adventure like this is that the mundane adventure still has to be exciting and challenging and fun and all the other things that your horror adventure is. It's not going to have necessarily the horripilating uh, quality and certainly not the shock of the great reveal at the end. But if you've played it correctly, the reveal that these guys are just normals will have a relief, and relief is halfway to humor, and humor is halfway to horror, so you can get some of the same emotional wallop when you reveal that they're just gangsters, or that they're just um, uh, crooked real estate developers, or the the heir trying to kill his dad uh, normally. The thing is that after that reveal happens, there has to be something interesting to do as opposed to just, oh, then we shoot them because we're armed for vampires and these guys are way weaker than vampires. So it's going to be super easy to wipe them out. I mean, either you're armed with vampires because you brought your holy water super soakers and they have real guns and now you're in trouble or the actual confrontation has to be something exciting and interesting. Like you can't expose the sun just straight up because um, you're in love with his sister. And if, you expose him, it'll break her heart. And so you have to figure out another thing. Or you can't just run these gangsters in because you're also wanted for a whole bunch of mysterious fires and murders, perhaps, if you're horror character, horror investigators. Um, so if you kill them all, maybe that solves the problem, question mark. But also, it's a supernatural game. You know that if you kill a bunch of people violently, their ghosts are going to come back. And also... If you let one of them go, he goes off and he tells Al Capone or whoever, hey, there's these jerks that think they're vampire hunters that are actually gangster hunters. They're probably working for the feds. Let's go murder everyone they care about. And you have to be able to escalate a mundane situation with consequences further down or else, again, it's just, oh, thank God it's just a real estate developer. I punch him. The end. Right. It seems then like one of the first tips is do this as part of an ongoing campaign where the possible consequences of the mundane interaction can then ripple forward into coming supernatural cases. I mean, you can do it as a one-shot because a one-shot doesn't have the assumption of horror. So if you say, we're playing Karnacki the Ghost Finder, people are like, well, is it going to be a ghost or is it going to be someone's son-in-law? And we don't know. And that's the fun of the solving the mystery part. But if you do it as a one-shot where it's like, this is Call of Cthulhu, and we're going to play Call of Cthulhu, and everyone's like, yes, I'm going to touch an idol and go crazy. And then it's like, no, I'm going to touch a real estate deed and go disappointed. That's not, that would be the letdown there. So if you sell it as a one-shot, sell it as a one-shot where you don't know if it's a mystery or not, and try and signal it's X-Files, it might be a straightforward thing. It's 
Uh, Karnacki, it might be a straightforward thing. And I guess another trick then is to create a sense of reward for discovering that it is a mundane situation so that there is something you get as players um, other than just because it, as the characters may feel a sense of emotional relief that it is uh, gangsters and not uh, summoners of Cthulhu, but as players that you're going to feel a little let, let, let down. So yeah. uh, it could be that uh, in a game that otherwise does not allow you to recover uh, stability or sanity or whatever it's called in your given system, that you can actually get an ongoing bonus to uh, that or a reversal of a previous uh, otherwise irrevocable uh, loss every time you discover that it's a fake so that you have some sort of benefit of that. Or, you know, you're working for the Houdini Foundation, and of course what they're looking for is proof that the supernatural is fake. Or you're working for the Ordo Veritatis and Esoteris, and they... They know the supernatural is real, but they are desperate to create the impression that it isn't because otherwise the membrane thins and the demons get through. So uh, they're very happy whenever it's revealed that a uh, scam is is just that. It's just a scam. And it's part of that setting that the uh, the bad guys, the esoterists, are trying to evoke supernatural effects often by doing mundane things that cause people cognitive dissonance. So that if you uh, manage to sort of nip that in the bud before it turns supernatural, that's a good thing and they're they're happy and you get rewards. And so uh, the uh, I, I guess one of the big tricks is to have a sense of gratification that, oh, this, this could have been so much worse. It's a good thing that they were gangsters and not cultists. Right. They, they, they weren't going to summon Cthulhu and burn down the whole town. They were just trying to cover up their, their arson or whatever. And in a Trail of Cthulhu specifically, there's the denial mechanic, where if you can deny that the thing that you're encountering has uh, happened at all or has any mythos significance, you get your sanity back. So the keeper might say, yeah, you don't get any sanity back from this because you didn't lose any, but you can get sanity back from that other case that now you can confabulate with this and say, oh, that was probably just gangsters anyway. Uh, we just, you know... They might have been wearing uh, diving suits, and that's what gangsters do, sure. And so you get a couple of points back that way uh, by retroactive denial of a previously uh, supernatural adventure. And that can create, again, ongoing uh, role-playing challenges as your character begins to sort of wonder what's real and what's not real, what's supernatural and what's not supernatural, and in a way becomes a better mythos character, or at least a more uh, well-rounded one, than one who's simply on the track of, oh no, it's all real, boom. And while that has Lovecraft, to, Lovecraftian characters are great exemplars of it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a particularly meaty long-term arc. Right, and then of course you can have, having the, taking the supernatural out of it doesn't mean that you've taken the horror out of it, because there are plenty of horror subgenres that uh, where just people are the predators. So right, yes, uh, the serial killer genre. Obviously, there was tons of those in X Files, where it was yeah. just serial killers. Yeah, serial killers, or uh, you know, your your family of uh, cannibals in the woods, or uh, you know, you could do uh, a a giallo of Cthulhu. Uh, you know, where you're headed off to investigate uh, this uh, this old house that has an occult history, but uh, the uh, people in the house are. Uh, killing each other uh, off in horrible, gruesome ways that still require plenty of uh, stability tests uh, when you see what's happened. But it's still, you know, just people um, doing horrible things to each other in, in a horror movie situation. I guess 
uh, Saw is another big example of, of that, where you could have a character who is, you know, he's inspired by the supernatural to uh, kidnap people and, and put them in horrible situations, but the supernatural manifestations never uh, never appear. It's part of his motivation. So he's still part of the world of the, the series, whether the main bad guys are extra-dimensional demons or they're mythos creatures or, or whatever it is, he that person can talk about them and, uh, you know, be inflected by cosmic horror or the tearing of the membrane or whatever the, the metaphysic of your horror universe is without actually, uh, you know, ever having a, a monster appear in that particular scenario. Yeah, the um, uh, obviously the first uh, season of True Detective is that classically uh, there's some relatively terrible novels about serial killers who are inspired by Lovecraft to go out and do horrible serial killery things. Um, those are pretty terrible, but you could certainly have a straight up cult. I mean, we have cults nowadays that do God awful things to people that fall into their clutches. Uh, they're in the news all the time and it would not be amazing in a world where Cthulhu is real, that there's either a pretend Cthulhu cult or a guy who's actually just been driven crazy because he was, you know, flew over the Pacific one time and went bananas. And when he landed, he just set up a normal cult in the sense of normally horrible, not in the sense of any magical significance, because again, Neolathotep and Cthulhu are tearing down human morality and order just by existing. That's their goal. If uh, Nirlathotep has a goal, Cthulhu doesn't have a goal, but it's what will happen at the end times in the Cthulhu uh, belief that mankind will become as the old ones and will just raven and tear freely. And so any uh, people that are doing that are, in a way, Cthulhu cultists, even if they never use magic, they never open a Necronomicon, they never have any of those effects. They're just awful people who do awful things just like we have um, in the news today. Another possibility, riffing on your uh, cannibals in the house as opposed to ghouls in the house, would be something where you go into the woods thinking it's Bigfoot and it's just a rabid grizzly bear, which is bloody terrifying anyway. And in a way, you could make that even more horrible than if you got in and found, oh, just Bigfoot, he's a gentle giant. But if you go in and you see it's a rabid frickin' grizzly bear... That's awful. That's, 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 that's just really, really terrible and really, really dangerous. And that can be your sort of Cujo type horror where all the signifiers of the demonic are there, but the actual thing that's happening is natural, even if it's really, really god awful. Another thing you can ask yourself is just in a, in a horror universe where you, the player characters are not the only people who have figured out that the supernatural exists, what would uh, malefactors do with that information in order to cover their tracks. So, uh, you know, in the 30s in Trail of Cthulhu, the uh, agents of, of Stalin or Hitler can be up to uh, all manner of, of horrible nastiness and they can be covering their tracks with uh, signs of the supernatural, which will, uh, you know, most people don't believe it, so, uh, you know, the cops won't mess with it or they'll reject it as nonsense and, uh, you know, only you the uh, intrepid investigators uh, get drawn into this, but then you, you know, you see that all of the uh, murders are, are being committed by, you know, spies rather than, uh, you know, creatures. And, and again, that can get you into way worse trouble because both Hitler and Stalin have more guys to throw at you uh, than yeah, Cthulhu right. does. They're, they're a very big cult. <laughs> yes. And then the um, question that leaves the question open is there also an occult bureau within the NKVD or within the SS that you can, you know, you, you know that, you know, 
occult Nazis are a staple of the fiction, but if all the quote-unquote occult Nazis you ever meet are Nazis who are engaged in psychological warfare, just like the British were engaged in psychological warfare during the war when they were making up fake Nostradamus and dumping it all over Germany, uh, maybe the Nazis have their own unit like that that goes out and, you know, uh, uh, targets the decadent, superstitious uh, uh, democracies. Uh, another possibility for this is um, to sort of cheat the premise a little bit, but we brought up Horse the Invisible earlier. There's a wonderful John Dixon Carr murder mystery called uh, The Burning Court, which is a mystery in which the solution is either that the killer is a witch or that the killer just was brought up in a very bad family environment. And John Dixon Carr just lays it right out and you, the reader, sort of get to decide which is true because being John Dixon Carr, the mechanism works perfectly, whichever explanation you believe. And then there's like, it's one of those things where there's like three endings and each ending says, oh no, it was a witch. Oh no, it was not a witch. Uh, maybe it was a witch. Right. And so <laughs> that perfect, I mean, you're not going to be John Dixon Carr, just give it up right now, but you can possibly add enough doubt into the game so that even though they're 98% sure it was gangsters, that one gangster does have a soapstone amulet on him. Maybe the gangsters were motivated by more than just greed. Maybe they had something else going on. Maybe the the communist uh, agents were, you know, faultless atheists who were just going out there setting up a fake um, uh, a UFO crash to mess with the Air Force. But maybe that guy doesn't just look Mongolian. He looks kind of gray. I don't know. Maybe there's something going on. And if you leave... It has an open question that actually presents a better example of a supernatural universe than a straight up. Yes, it was Gray's. Yes, it was Bigfoot. Yes, it was Cthulhu. Yes, it was this because the whole point of the supernatural is that you can't define it and you can't put it in a little box and say, Oh, look, it's a free roaming class four phantasm. You have to say, I think it was a ghost, but we also had some bad oysters before we stayed the night in that house. So who can say? Right. If you, if you leave. You know, alternate possibilities open as part of the story, because as you suggest, all of the, you know, actual famous supernatural events can be uh, looked at by a believer or a non-believer. So, you know, maybe the Annabelle doll uh, really was possessed, or maybe she was just a Raggedy Ann doll and those nursing students were uh, 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 tripping on something. Or, you know, the uh, are they cultists out in the woods bringing down a creature or are they uh, peasants? Uh, hopped up on ergot fungus or, uh, you know, the, uh, is the, this haunted house a, uh, an actual uh, visitation or is it just, you know, an overexcited adolescent? Uh, and, um, if, if you leave that note of ambiguity, that allows the players who want to believe everything is a supernatural to feel satisfied by that. And the people who want to continue on being skeptical scullies, that gives them a sort of an, an arrow in their quiver to hold on to the the skepticism that they uh, want to play, as we talked about a few episodes back. Uh, well, I think that sounds like a summation. So it I does. think it's time for us to uh, see uh, what lies uh, past the veil of the upcoming commercial.
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrain Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The scrupulous background check and the retina prints that you had to leave on file tell us that we are once more in the top secret environment that is the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, I thought that we would uh, risk dealing with an ongoing news story, uh, given our uh, lead time. Uh, we are recording this on April 10th, but at this point, the uh, main figures in this story seem to be out of the woods, so maybe it's safe now to talk about the Skripal affair. Uh, this, of course, is the uh, very recent assassination attempt against uh, former uh, Russian agent Sergei Skripal, uh, his uh, daughter Yulia. On uh, March 4th, they were poisoned with Novichok, a, a deadly nerve agent, uh, while they were in the UK. Uh, so, Ken, uh, our listeners want to uh, be able to sound very smart and informed the next time this story comes up when they're hanging out at a tavern or uh, eating dinner with their family. Uh, what lies behind the headlines of the Skripal affair? I mean, basically, the Russians, even more, or at least even more aggressively than the good old Soviets, like to go off and murder folk who don't play ball and have, in one way or another, annoyed uh, the security services. This usually is a dissident uh, of some sort that uh, drops dead. Often they drop dead in Russia, in which case it's just a sort of, well, you're in Russia, that's going to happen. But plenty of times it happens in London. And there's been, I don't know, what, a dozen cases of Russian dissidents being uh, just plain up murdered or mysteriously falling out of windows in London. Uh, the FSB has apparently decided that London is their turf now, or the uh, SVR has, depending on who is in charge of murdering people overseas. It may be a, like a, a friendly competition, a Yale-Harvard thing. But uh, Skripal is, is uh, slightly unusual in that he is a former double agent uh, for uh, British intelligence, not a straight-up dissident. He's only a problem in the sense that he was um, uh, arrested by the FSB uh, in, uh, 19, in 2004 for treason, was sentenced to prison, and then was swapped during a what was used to be, even again under the Cold War, 
a pretty normal spy swap affair where you would take all of your spies that you have in prison and they would take all their spies that they have in prison and you would swap them out, usually on the bridge in Berlin because it was cool. And um uh then they would all go on with their lives. And yeah, they'd have to move and hide out in the countryside, but that was more so that the CIA or the MI6 or uh, the KGB could find them to debrief them all the time. And because you never are quite sure who's a triple agent, rather than a, you have to keep them safe from roving bands of assassins. And that I think is the, is, is to the extent there is a reason to believe the Russians. And there is almost never a reason to believe the Russians, not now, not then. Um, it is that this is really kind of out of character for, for them. And it would be a really aggressive move by their security services. Again, you can't rule it out. Their security services are famously aggressive and, uh, are only going to get more so if they're not, you know, uh, beaten on the nose with the rolled up newspaper. The other weird thing about the case is that the Novichok agent was apparently introduced into the house to pro- poison not just Sergei Skripal, but his visiting daughter Yulia, but their cat and guinea pigs, at least according to the London police, died just of starvation, of not being fed because they were left in the house all the whole time. And people are like, how come you didn't notice a cat when you went in to get these nearly dead people? And if nerve gas got in, how come it didn't get in the cat? Well, they were found out. They were found on a park bench. Pardon? They were found outdoors. They weren't found in their apartment. But they were poisoned in the house is the theory. Right. Right. So, yes. So I guess they went in with their hazmat suits and uh, were nervous about the presence mm-hmm. of, uh, of nerve gas. Nerve gas yeah. and didn't do a thorough pet check. Right. I mean, that I mean, and also we don't necessarily know that, you know, some, you know, constable knows the difference between a nerve gas death and a cat who's dying of not being watered. And uh, the cat and the guinea pigs have been uh, cremated. So we'll never be able to, you know, do a tox screen on the animals. But it is. Another note of weirdness in the case uh, that uh, obviously the Russians seize on as proof positive that they didn't poison anybody. And how dare you? And um, uh, it, it adds a, a uh, another bit of, of oddity to the attack. Uh, as, as you say, um, they're both seem to be getting better, which argues that the Novichok was not applied topically, which would argue for it being, you know, pumped into their house and then they wander out and die or don't die, but they wander out and, and collapse um, as opposed to, because I assume that if this, this uh, Novichok stuff is supposed to be eight times worse than VX, I would not think it would take that much if it actually, if you get, you know, poison umbrella with it to just kill you as opposed to not kill you, which is what the uh, FSB did. Right. Right. Um, and so I guess the, the broader context here is, one of the questions is how much actual top-down authority does uh, Putin exert when such a thing happens? Or, uh, you know, does someone hear somebody else say, well, someone rid me of this troublesome uh, double agent? Uh, there are some uh, theories that uh, uh, Skripal had been, to some extent, activated again and was uh, assisting British intelligence in, in some way. Or you could argue that it's essentially a way of reminding the uh, UK and by extension the West in general just how impotent they are in the face of uh, Russian belligerence because uh, the uh, difficult fact for the UK is that there's now so much Russian money in London and uh, floating around their economy um, at a time when they're uh, 
busy um, severing some of the other, uh, you know, more conventional ways that uh, that money flows into that economy, that, uh, you know, the sanctions that would have to be put on all of the oligarchs who, of course, want to live in London and not Moscow or St. Petersburg, that, uh, you know, it shows that basically, uh, you know, you're, you're bought and paid for Britain. There's only so much you can do and we can right. operate with uh, almost the same impunity on your soil. Uh, as uh, as we do on ours. I, I should mention that it's Salisbury that they were attacked in, not London. So my um, uh, my apologies to the London police, who I'm sure would have noticed the cats. Uh, but but it, uh, uh, more evidence that it happened in the house is that a Salisbury police sergeant uh, named uh, Nick Bailey, who went into the house to find out what was going on, was also reported. Uh, it was in serious condition with the same symptoms. So it's an agent in the house. It's not uh, a, a guy with a poison umbrella poking him on the park bench. Now, mysterious deaths wise, there have been people connected to uh, uh, Putin and, and the Russian establishment uh, die mysteriously in the U.S. But so far, that's always been attributable to uh, overindulgence in uh, alcohol and uh you know, premature heart attacks. Uh, nothing has been uh, quite as blatant as uh, an exotic nerve toxin, which obviously is. And I think that uh, Litvinenko being poisoned with the polonium is pretty blatant. In the UK. Yeah, but in the right. US, right, so yeah. far, uh, everything has been has had at least two possible explanations. What do you think would happen, uh, given the current state of your glorious nat- nation, if there were a, a nerve-gassing uh, of a uh, Russian-connected uh, figure uh, in uh, in Washington or New York City. I I literally have no idea. I mean, John Bolton, our as of right now, and set your watches. And I remember recording this ten days ago. National Security Advisor is an old school Russia hawk. I mean, he's one of those guys who thinks they were just you know uh, playing rope a dope at the end of the Cold War. So uh, that guy, you know, if it was up to him. You know, we we bomb Russians in Syria again. Uh, it may be uh, the, the the CIA. Um, Lord knows what they're up to. I mean, the CIA is relatively toothless and feckless uh, in the face of of blatant Russian provocation under any administration. So I'm not sure that they would be uh, any more eager to go outside their bureaucratic remit and try something. Um, one of the, uh, wonderful challenges of our current, uh, days is that it is kind of impossible to predict what's going to happen, which when it was Nixon and Kissinger, you could at least convince yourself was done on purpose at this point. <laughs> you, literally, who knows? I mean, it might be nothing. It might be everything. We did expel a whole bunch of, uh, diplomats, uh, in solidarity with the British and we closed down the Seattle consulate. Um, frankly, if we keep closing down these consulates that are basically nothing but extended industrial espionage centers, that's all to the good as far as I'm concerned. So maybe there's a, maybe there's a consulate in Boston that needs a good closing down if they, uh, uh poison gas someone in America. Or maybe we would just be having lengthy arguments about maybe he just slipped and fell in the nerve gas. We don't know that the Russians did it. So I literally have no faintest idea. I imagine that if Bolton uh, got his way, it would be something robust and whether or not the CIA would be capable of doing it is another open question. I think that, uh, the state department to a lesser extent and the FBI very much love shutting down these Russian consulates. So I, it would not uh, blow my mind if like, uh, I assume that there's a Russian consulate in Boston 
that that one got closed down next or something else would. So how do we rip this from the headlines and put it in a world where uh, the thing we're scared of is not uh, uh, Putin, but vampires in uh, Night's Black Agents? I mean, this is a classic uh, possible element. I mean, what you begin with is you say, okay, the guy's in this horrible condition. Um, He and his daughter were both hit uh, and this cop, and they're all getting better, though. If it was Novichok, wouldn't he be all dead? And what about these cats and guinea pigs? And they were in a in a weird condition. And we know that if they're drained of life, uh, maybe they weren't being um, uh, thirsted to death. But the vampire came through and he and he you know drained out all their life force when he hit um, uh, uh, the Screepals. And the Screepals are not being poisoned with Novichok, but they are being infected with vampirism. And so when they come up out of the a hospital. Yeah, there's going to be some lingering photophobia and tooth sensitivity. That's very common with Novichok poisoning. You don't worry about that. Um, yeah, you're going to be wanting to be on a liquid diet. Um, you know, no, not, no solid foods for a while. Your system's going to take a while to, uh, to, to deal with that. Uh, you may notice some, you know, hyper, uh, sensitivity of your senses. That's all normal. And then he's wandering around and he's full of a vampire toxin. And maybe he's being meant not to be an agent of the FSB, although that's one possibility, but a vector. Maybe they've developed a vampire plague, the vampires have, and are trying to use him as a typhoid Mary, if you will. Because again, people have been coming to interrogate him that were his old MI6 handler and whoever's in charge of the MI5 uh, counterintelligence unit and lots of very high officials uh, or if not the people themselves, their very core deputies. And now they've been exposed to this vampire virus. And so if the vampires have done this as a means of seeding their vampire virus within the British national security establishment, what better guy than instead of one of these political dissidents who's not going to attract high level Intel uh, attention but a former actual agent of MI6, that's the guy you want to hit with the vampire toxin. All these other guys were, yeah, just straight up murdered by the FSB. The vampires are disguising their supernatural attack as a normal uh, nerve gassing of a Russian dissident. And uh, as a Knight's Black Agent player, you could do an enormous favor for your GM. You could provide an apple for the teacher, which we always recommend on this show, by specifying in your backstory that you are returning to duty during the first... Uh, episode of the uh, campaign after having been survived a, a nerve gas attack, uh, which you uh, assume was uh, conducted against you by the FSB. And uh, despite all expectations, you mysteriously survived. And there's a, a weird gap of like uh, three hours uh, where uh, somehow there was some other treatment applied to, and you don't really know the story on that yet. But everything's fine. You're back to work. Let's start the session. Right. A, a guy with um uh, with no insignia came in and injected you with something red and said, "Don't worry, you'll be okay." And then that, and then you were okay. It worked right. great. And and that's your drive. You know, uh, understand mm-hmm. the incident, and uh, that gives you and the GM all sorts of uh, fertile ground to play around with. And then, as you suggest, that can be. Everything from you have been Renfielded to uh, your remission is only temporary and the bad guys can reverse it whenever they want to, uh, you know, you ha- you are the individual with the new form of vampirism to just you're, you know, you know turning into a straight up vampire or or the substance planted in you is the special thing that uh, renders you immune to vampirism. And the uh, shadowy figures who are fighting the vampires have made you the. Uh, ultimate anti-vampire weapon, and you just don't know it yet. Um, and uh, another possible approach is 
Uh, Novichok was built not just in the Russian Republic, but also under the old Soviet Union in Uzbekistan. And maybe you've got old CIA connections who can get you into Uzbekistan to that laboratory. And you can examine that laboratory for evidence that there might have been more going on than just building deadly, deadly nerve gas, that there might have been uh, vampire gas going on. And that way you don't have to go right up against uh, the FSB in Moscow to find out what's going on. You can maybe sneak around the side. And that sets up any number of possibilities from the CIA now wanting to know what's going on to the CIA already knowing what's going on and trying to shunt you away from the CIA's vampire program because it was them that did it, not the Russians, just like the poor Russians have been saying the whole time, um, uh, or uh, any number of other possibilities. Uh, the, the, the great thing about the Soviet chemical and biological weapons program is they did it a whole bunch of places, so there's lots of uh, leftover drippy labs somewhere um, uh, being, you know, sold off for parts or badly maintained by a minimum wage security guard. Right. And, and that, of course, is the great thing about the, uh, toxic, uh, materials program, uh, from the point of view of us safely at home in our gaming parlors, <laughs> yes. as opposed to anyone anywhere near them. Anyone, and, uh, anyone remotely note, associated with it. Yes. I think it's time to put on our, our hazmat suits and, uh, head through the following commercial to see, uh, just what's on the other side of that. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Pull off one last big score with such Patreon backers as... Frank King. Hyperlexic. Jason Denon. Michael Manavel. And Ruth Tillman. The horror of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and whatever that is under our feet between the seats tell us we've once more nestled down into the middle seats of the Cinema Hut, where Patreon backer Chris Camfield, I believe, asks us uh, to go through heist films and their cousins, the con artist film, for a Heist Films 101. Uh, Robin, we are always happy to 101 our Patreon backers and other friends. 
Uh, do you want to start us off? Do we want to talk about the boundaries of the genre? Anything like that? I have a couple of suspicions. Right. Uh, one of which is that our lists will be even more similar than usual, uh, cause it's a relatively mm-hmm. small corpus. Uh, two, I suspect that given the amount of time we want to talk about each film, we'll get to the heist and have to kick down the con men for another, uh, segment later. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll get to the con men. And again, the, the, the boundaries between them sort of are shaky because many heists are led by a con man, right? Yes. The, the difference between the con man and the mastermind are, are not so uh, different. And you have to do a certain amount of conning, uh, to pull off a heist. So they're definitely, uh, cousins. For me, a heist, uh, needs a significant section of the, uh, storytelling devoted to the planning, uh, versus the execution of the heist. Um, and, uh, that's what differentiates it from, uh, just a, uh, a bank robbery film or a hostage taking film, which are other right. also similar, uh, subgenres. So, uh, taking a Pelham 123 is not going to be on my list. The Dog Day Afternoon is not going to be on my list. Even uh, though they're both great movies. Reservoir even though Dogs movies. would not be on our, on our list. If someone asks us for, uh, you know, bank robbery movies 101, then uh, we're, we'll, we'll do those, uh, and there's right. enough to do. Um, so uh, let's start listing off movies. So for me, the uh, sort of quintessential early heist movie that fulfills one of the main requirements of the genre, which is a big focus on the procedural element of how do you actually execute this, is Rafifi from 1955. <laughs> uh, yes, once we are, we are, we are right, we're right there. Uh, we may uh, have your exactly has come the true. same list this time. <laughs> it, it will not amaze me. Uh, this is a, a French film uh, by an American director, uh, Jules Dassin, uh, and uh, he was uh, worked as much later on in Europe as he did in the U.S. because he was blacklisted. Anyway, uh, Rafifi is about a jewel robbery, and the set piece is a silent series of procedural beats that go on through uh, the entire execution of the robbery so that you're just watching for about half an hour every single little step involved in uh, committing this uh, this jewel robbery. So uh, one of the big uh, aspects of the heist movie is the how-to, and this uh, Rafifi has this in, in space, and I think is what makes it the sort of quintessential early heist movie. Yeah, and I would say really on the other side of the coin from Rafifi and as important to the genre is a movie, uh Italian movie from 1958 called big deal on Madonna street. <laughs> why, why, why can I have that on my list? <laughs> what a, what a coincidence. What a coincidence. Uh, it's directed by Mario Monticelli. It stars a bunch of guys who at the time were not, you know, necessarily super famous, although Marcello Mastroianni, I think, was beginning to be super famous. And, of course, uh, the lovely Claudia Cardinal is in it, um, although not enough. Uh, she's never in, in enough things in the movies. Uh, and this is, as opposed to the grimly professional heist in which everything is done very seriously and straight, oh, the rafifiness of it, Big Deal on Madonna Street is the bumbling heist. It's the screw-up heist. It's the, a bunch of goofs ruin everything continually and the joke is how long and how ridiculously it takes them to knock over a pawn shop they're not even trying to you know steal the federal reserve or something they're just these guys that get together and it is formally exactly like rafifi except that it's a comedy not a tragedy and that is the other half of heist movies and when you look at a lot of the later heist movies they seem to be rafifis but a lot of them are either borrowing 
grace notes or tone or whole plot developments in some cases from Big Deal on Madonna Street. And there was a remake of it, if you don't want to watch an Italian film for some reason, uh, as Welcome to Collinwood, which starred William H. Macy in the Marcello Mastriani part and, uh, was, uh, a, it was good fun, but it was no, uh, Big Deal on Madonna Street. But I recommend both of them and certainly for the heist. The other half is the screw-up heist. Right. And uh, this is not uh, formally on my list, but since you mentioned it, there's a, a an earlier American uh, comedy called Larceny Incorporated with uh, Edward G. Robinson in it, which has uh, a similar renting the place next door in order to uh, tunnel into the, uh, in this case, a bank vault. And right. that is even more of a farce where the whole thing is trying to keep all of the kooky neighborhood characters out of the luggage shop that you've bought as a cover in order to then uh, conduct this uh, this heist. And, of course, everybody is really intent on coming in and disturbing them all the time. So that's a, a really more of a going-in-and-out-of-doors uh, farce with, uh, with a heist instead of uh, adultery as its core. Um, back, however, to my uh, actual uh, choices, uh, Bob LaFlambeur from uh, 56, Jean-Pierre Melville. We're going to have exactly the same lists. Um, we are. Uh, this is, uh, it was I'm going to start, by, I'm go to the other end of my list now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is co-written by the, uh, novelist who wrote the novel over Fifi. Uh, this is by Jean-Pierre Melville, the epitome. The, the great director. Uh, yes. Of French uh, noir cool. And this is, uh, sort of a more doom laden, uh, romantic, uh, version of the heist. And of course, uh, the thing that the, without giving away spoilers to any of these, the thing that tells you about the worldview of the director in the film is uh, what happens uh, to the heisters. Uh, and uh, and this one, I think, is a, a particularly uh, cigarette-wreathed treat of, uh, of an outcome. Uh, what's up on both of our lists, Ken? <laughs> All right. I'm going to try and uh, break it up a little bit here because this is hilarious and fun. But seriously, people, um, I'm going to say Heat by Michael Mann is a heist movie that is inside another movie because the movie itself is a straight up gangster slash crime movie. It's about the rise of a criminal and the, and the uh, fall basically of the cop who will nonetheless bring him down. But inside it are two really great heist segments, plus a heist in which they're not heisting a thing, but heisting, the cops. They are heisting the identity of the cops who are coming after them. And so those three beats, those three heist beats are in the middle of this, you know, it's Michael Mann, so operatic is not necessarily a ridiculous word to use. This operatic uh, gangster film. Uh, so I would say, um, put heat on your list, even though it is not a heist film, but it contains within it, and it's like, what, three hours long? Yes. So it contains, um, uh, it contains a whole heist film in it, certainly, right. uh, so even it, though it's yes. not a heist and, film. And the only reason it's not on my list is, as you say, it's not a heist film. It's not uh, a heist So I guess film. I'm the one who has to say the obvious, uh, once you get to the contemporary era, uh, the Ocean series by Steven Soderbergh, uh, uh, 11, 12, and 13. I have a soft spot for 12. Uh, really? Which is sort of off model in a way. I am, a, I am, I am not surprised by that. I'm of course saddened by it, but I'm not <laughs> surprised by that. And, uh, his recent Appalachian, uh, homage to his own, uh, work, uh, Logan Lucky. So I think if you want to look at- on my top 10. Yep. Yeah. Um, so if you want to look at, uh, the, uh, contemporary, uh, version of the heist movies. This is, he's, uh, Soderbergh and, and company are the ones who sort of, 
reframed and recapitulated uh, everything. And uh, and the recommendation, of course, is for the the latter day Ocean's Eleven because the original with uh, Frank Sinatra and the rest of the Rat Pack really shows the fact that Frank never wanted to do more than a few takes or hang around the set all day. Yeah, it was, it's, it's interesting, but it is not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. Right. The, the SCTV parody, the extended SCTV parody of Ocean's Eleven, which predated the Soderbergh film is actually much better than the Frank Sinatra <laughs> version and has all of the SCTV characters, uh, pulling a heist. So, you know, the gang is Bobby Bittman and uh, Guy Caballero and so forth. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna zig again uh, because someone has to, uh, and I'm gonna mention the Doom series of Bollywood heist movies, which are the highest grossing series of films in uh, Hindi cinema. They are visually magnificent, and all of them are actually contain pretty great heist sequences. Uh, the first one, uh, Doom, uh, as it is, uh, has the best I think heist sequence in all of them, in that the final climactic heist sequence is literally choreographed to a Bollywood dance number in the sense that not only is the action choreographed to the music, but in the story, uh, Isha Deol, who is the femme fatale in the film is dancing with the main cop. And they know that as long as they dance, the main cop can't stop their heist. So they have, choreographed their heist to that dance at a midnight and New Year's Eve in a casino, I think it is, or a hotel in Goa. And then they do the knockoff during the song. It is an amazing piece of meta uh, filmmaking. It's a great just heist sequence straight up. And Isha Deal dancing is, as far as I'm concerned, worth the whole price of admission by itself. So you have a really formally one of the best heist sequences ever put on film is at the tail end of Doom. Doom 2 is that same movie, only much bigger and much prettier and considerably sillier. And then Doom 3 sort of pulls it back. It's not more normal because the main, well, I, I'm not going to spoiler it. I don't even think it's possible really to spoiler it, but the, 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 the focus instead of a globe girdling series of thefts is on one man with a heisting dream and his big, uh, plan to do the, to do the thing and, uh, how that's going to work in Doom 3 is sort of the, the, the core arc of the story. So it's a more connected, contained film in a lot of ways. And of course it's filmed in Chicago, which means it is easily the best looking of the three. Uh, speaking of, uh, Doom, not the name of the, uh, series of Indian heist movies, but the sense of Doom that pervades the characters and the worldview. Uh, the <laughs> Killing, 1956, Stanley Kubrick. Yes. This is a racetrack robbery and, an exemplar of the uh, everything uh, spirals into, uh, dare we say it, a fiasco uh, at the end. <laughs> it, it's, it's Kubrick. That's not a giveaway. That's not a spoiler. Uh, um, uh, beautifully shot with uh, Sterling Hayden as the as the lead and uh, very memorably uh, Elisha uh, J. Cook as uh, uh, one of the loser gangsters who's who's in on things and uh, his, his loserness sort of... Uh, kicks everything down into spiral mode. And uh, it, it contains one of my favorite cinematic lines, uh, which is 5,000 bucks to rub out a horse. <laughs> well, you can't beat that. To riff off of your notion of Ocean's Eleven as a good remake of a bad movie, I will suggest a good remake, or perhaps even a great remake, of a good-to-great movie, I am one of the people who likes the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair even better than I liked the original, and since the original had Steve McQueen in it, that's how good I think the remake is. 
Thomas Crown Affair, obviously, is a pair of uh, heist movies. Um, the first one, he's a uh, bank robber. In the second one, he steals art. So there's even a difference to it. The first one, he's Steve McQueen. And the second one, he's Pierce Brosnan. Uh, the first one, the a woman who is investigating him, the insurance investigator in both cases, is a Faye Dunaway. In the second one, it's Rene Russo. You can't say better than that. And the, what do I want to say? The, just the sheer production design, the quality, the, um, uh, all the bits of the film around the central action in Thomas Crown, the remake, the 1999 remake, are good. And it's directed by John McTiernan, who of course made Die Hard and is, I think, given that he made an all-time perfect film, Still weirdly underrated as a director, but uh, uh, Thomas Crown Affair, the remake, I like even better than I like the original. Rob, what's your take, Robin? Uh, I think the original is interesting, the, the Norman Jewison one, because of its uh, formal qualities, because the uh, assignment that Jewison set for himself was to have a film that was only style and had nothing mm-hmm. more to it than its style. And so it's sort of uh, Norman Jewison's uh, most uh, experimental film. And if you're going to make something that's, only about style, do it in 1968. That's a pretty yeah. good year for style. <laughs> right. So yeah. uh, for that reason, I kind of like the original just because it is a, a less normal film than, uh, than the original. Um, so just to go back and pick off the last few titles, uh, back to Sterling Hayden and a heist where everything goes wrong. Uh, you got to look at Asphalt Jungle. Yes, the classic in, in many ways, the Ur or the, the, the sort of the, the patient zero, at least, of heist movies in America. Uh, so that's from 1950. And uh, that's about a jewel robbery where everything goes wrong and has very clearly delineated roles for all of the people in the heist. So here's the mastermind. Here's the bank roller. Here's the, uh, you know, the the seasoned leader crook who's uh, who's been in one too many times. And uh, and it's uh, John Houston. So you, you can't go wrong with that. And has an early uh, role for uh, Marilyn Monroe. In it. Right. Uh, many, many wonderful things about it. Um, on the list of, uh, films that perhaps, uh, I am fonder of than it deserves, I like the David Mamet film Heist. It is a Mamet film first and a Heist film second, but it is sort of Mamet approaching or attempting to approach, again, both Rafifi and Big Deal at Madonna Street, but in a Mamety key. Um, and it has, some of that uh, trademark mammoth who's on whose side uh, stuff going on. Uh, and Danny DeVito does a, a very good turn as kind of an awful bad guy, not as just sort of funny, hilarious goofball Danny DeVito. But there's a moment in which you're like worried that he's going to be a problem for Gene Hackman, which is not something you worry about very often. Yes. And that has a, uh... Uh, the, the Danny DeVito gets to deliver one of uh, Mammoth's great, great lines, lines yeah. that is not in Glengarry Glen Ross, which is everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. That's why they call it money. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to uh, give my last uh, mention. It would be out of character for me uh, not to cite uh, Once a Thief. Uh, that's John Wu's tribute to the heist tradition. Uh, if you have seen Once a Thief already, when you go to see it again, it's even sillier than you remember it being. It's definitely uh, Wu uh, relaxing and having a goof. And, you know, there's even a point where a guy shows up who uh, kills people by throwing playing cards. So it's it's uh, it's not in the same reality as a lot of these other films. But it has Chai and Fat and Leslie Chung in it. And it's John Wu. And it's uh, and it's uh, fun and, uh, and and silly. So do you have any more heist movies? I have, I have one last one. Uh, because you reminded me of this. In fact, it wasn't even on my list, although that's a indictment of me. (laughs) 
the Choi Dong-hoon movie Thieves, which is a movie oh, yes. about the passing of the torch of action cinema from Hong Kong to Korea. And again, it's a classic uh, heist movie with a bunch of heists in it, as well as being a gangster film in the sense that it's about two crews of, of, of criminals uh, at war with each other. So like a lot of great Korean genre films, it's more than one genre, but it's also just... You know, you watch that movie and 45 minutes in, you're done. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I've seen the, the next great heist film. Oh, good Lord. There's another, you know, hundred minutes of this film left. It, it's, it's not finished turning into other movies. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it, it made a huge amount of money in Korea. It's a magnificent film. It's again, very, very stylish. We're talking about stylish films, just the, the visuality and the verticality of it. I, I don't think there's been a, a film this, in love with vertical space since the old expressionist uh, films in a way. And it's just a great movie and a great meta commentary, which I think a lot of great movies are also about other things. And it's fun if the director knows that too. Right. And, and has Simon Yam show up to, uh, to be the bridge between those two cinemas. Exactly. Uh, well, just like an excellent con man, uh, I told everybody up front the trick that I was going to play on them, uh, which is that we're not going to get to the con man movies this time. So we'll, uh, <laughs> Uh, n- not next week, but maybe the week after that, we'll get back to uh, uh, con artist films uh, 101. Uh, and until then, uh, we'd better uh, get out of here while we still have our suitcases full of money, because nothing bad can happen to you when you have suitcases full of money. Right, we've pulled it off. That means we're home free. Watch any heist movie. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotones tell us that once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our intrepid history hero back into the timeline to bend, fold, spindle, and even, yes, mutilate it. And uh, this time around, uh, Time Incorporated isn't quite sure whether you are uh, doing something in the name of good or undoing something done by uh, uh, the many rival uh, time forces. But the question before us is, what alternate reality results when William Dewar's scheme to take over the Bank of the United States succeeds? In this timeline, of course, it failed. So maybe uh, for those uh, not up on their banking scandals of the late 1700s, uh, perhaps you would like to uh, tell people who William Dewar was. All right. 
Uh, William Dewar was a signer of uh, the Articles of Confederation. He was a Continental Congressman. He served in Congress, then resigned to become a military contractor, buying equipment and uniforms and such for the Continental Army. Uh, he made a pile of money off that, which begins to maybe send you a couple of signals that he was not a entirely up-and-up type fellow because there was not enough supplies reaching the Continental Army for someone to get rich off of, honestly. So uh, Dewar... Also, while being a uh, supplier of the Continental Army and a Continental Congressman, earns the affection and respect of Alexander Hamilton. Because one thing William Dewar knows is that without George Washington, we are all doomed. And he uses every bit of his influence to help George Washington stay in command of the army, which was actually an open question several times during the war. So that made Hamilton uh, overlook his other pe- personal peccadilloes, recommend him for a position on uh, the uh, Treasury Board of the United States, which uh, there was before the Constitution was ratified. And then once Alexander Hamilton becomes Secretary of Treasury, uh, he takes his old buddy, William Dewar, and he puts him in charge of something called the Society for Useful Manufactures, which was a scheme by Hamilton to take government money and loan it to people who wanted to build factories. And they bought a big stretch of land in New Jersey. Uh, Patterson, New Jersey, was built as part of the Society for Useful Manufacturers. An early private-public partnership. Exactly, and very much part of Alexander Hamilton's uh, corporatist view of how the United States should work. And uh, another part of Alexander Hamilton's corporatist view of how the United States should work is that the United States should get all this money by having a bank, the Bank of the United States, which would act like the Bank of England as a lender of last resort, as the holder of government financial instruments, and as a source of credit for useful things in the country like factories or whatever. Right. And this was not an an obvious or uncontroversial idea. No, no, it was not. Thomas Jefferson said, you know what happens when you get central bankers? You get a bunch of rich folk in cities who've never tilled a field in their life or ordered slaves to till a field, which amounts to the same thing, uh, run in the country and we can't have that. And uh, he and his uh, faction fought tooth and nail against the Bank of the United States. Hamilton won, got the bank chartered, and his old buddy William Dewar knew all about it because he was friends with Alexander Hamilton. And he basically used insider information to buy up the scrip of the National Bank, which was a note that you bought for $25 so that you would be allowed to buy shares of the National Bank. The shares were priced at $400 payable over uh, two years. That was a compromise. Hamilton wanted it to be a big lump sum up front so that only rich people would buy shares and you wouldn't let poor people run a bank, which was crazy talk. And the Jeffersonians wanted, first of all, no bank, but they certainly wanted normal people to be able to afford a share in the bank if they wanted. So they sort of compromised on this. And what that created was a situation in which someone with inside information could trade on the prices, the futures market, basically, in those shares. (laughs) Uh, Dewar began with a stock run on the bank in which he both bought long with one partner and sold short with another, screwing over his first partner and making a fortune uh, on the short sale after his buying long had driven the first Bank of the United States share offering nearly into destruction. Hamilton intervenes in 1791 and buys up the shares to keep the price from plummeting too much and saves both the country's bank 
and Dewar's tale. Dewar says, well, if that worked so well this time, I'll do it again <laughs> on a much bigger scale and use money from the Society of Useful Manufacturers that's just sitting around not building factories yet. Yes, and, and that's when you look up moral hazard in the dictionary. There's moral hazard in the Dewar. dictionary, exactly. And so Dewar went all in. Hamilton basically warned him and said, you are not going to get away with this uh, a second time because I will tell everyone that you uh, are, you know, not good for the money. Basically, I'll, I'll, uh, I won't back you with the with the federal government. And Dewar said, oh, "I sure you will, buddy." And he goes on to, uh, to this scheme. Uh, the Jeffersonian faction hates it. Uh, the Clinton faction, not our uh, current beloved Clintons, but the old school uh, Clintons in New York, who were the opponents of Hamilton, hated it. And the Livingstons, who were older school rich people than Dewar and his uh, cronies, uh, who are all making money in timber futures and, and timber sales and land uh, speculation, didn't like it. So they all conspired to drive the price of the bank shares down again. And Dewar's like, well, I've heard that the Bank of New York, which these guys all own, is going to be joined to the Bank of the United States, and those shares will be Bank of New York shares. And so you should buy my Bank of Million, which is what he literally called his other bank shares, so that you won't be caught when New York goes away uh, in an attempt to sort of double play them. This by now is way too many schemes for even a very, very bright man to keep in, uh, keep track of. William Dewar is not that bright man. Comes a day when people are saying, hey, William Dewar, you bought all those uh, shares um, uh, on short contracts. Time to start paying them off. Dewar looks around to Hamilton and says, now would be a good time to raise the price. And <laughs> Hamilton says, I warned you. And Dewar gets basically, <laughs> he, 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 first of all, he gets basically threatened by angry mobs for a while. And so he voluntarily goes to debtor's prison because it's safer than his house. And unlike many malefactors of great wealth, uh, then or now stayed in debtor's prison basically for the rest of his life. Uh, that was the panic of 1792 with Dewar safely in prison. Hamilton then intervenes again, uh, but not in this time by uh, buying up shares of stock in the bank. He intervenes by saying, Oh, the bank is great. We're going to keep loaning out money. We're just going to loan it at a higher rate of uh, interest than we were previously. And so you can go ahead and, uh, and get a, a, a better longer term loan at a higher rate of interest uh, if you have good collateral. And everyone says, oh, that sounds good. And so the panic of 1792, which did it admittedly immiserate pretty much the whole city of New York and Philadelphia, managed to be stopped without blowing the entire country into a depression. And uh, Hamilton's management of that panic has been roundly praised by all economic historians before or since. One of the other side effects from that is that a bunch of guys who are all happily trading U.S. Uh, Bank and Bank of New York stock shares said, this nearly bankrupted everybody. We should maybe have rules about how we trade stock. And we're not just going to do it standing out on the street or in coffee shops. We should have a building and we should write down all the trading so that everyone knows who owned what. Because one of the things that people were doing was just denying they'd ever bought a share and saying, oh, you must be thinking of some other Henry Livingston, not me. And so they, you know, they didn't have, you know, traceable credit accounts. So you couldn't we really. We need a system to keep track of whenever anyone does an exchange of a stock. What shall we call this thing? What shall we call it? Oh, we should call it the same thing it's called in uh, Holland, the stock exchange. But uh, that was the, sort of the the foundation of the United States financial uh, infrastructure was uh, Hamilton's Bank, the Bank of New York, and the Wall Street uh, Stock Exchange, which was set up on Wall Street in Manhattan. And that's why we call it Wall Street. <laughs> 
So I'm going to guess then from all of this that the uh, force that changes the timeline so that William Dewar uh, succeeds and uh, uh, manages to uh, acquire control of the Bank of the United States is not a uh, timeline that you wish to instate, but rather wish to reverse. Is that correct? Um, yeah, but it's one of those where at the beginning, it's sort of hard to tell. Because at the beginning, if Dewar controls the Bank of the United States, what he wanted to do with all that is, first of all, pay back the Society for Useful Manufacturers so he doesn't have his embezzlement caught. Second, he wanted to sell American credit in Europe because the Europeans at this time are going through the Napoleonic War and they're desperately looking for a place to park their money. Um, basically, what he would have been doing is creating the American financial structure that b- grew up in the 1920s when everyone after World War One and before World War II said, well, we're not leaving money with Europe. They'll just fight a war with it. We'll take it to America. And that, I think, had at least an outside chance of working. The other thing that's the knock-on effect, obviously, is that Hamilton's notion of corporatist factory building uh, it does not immediately blow up when all the money is stolen, but you get lots of government-founded factories in New Jersey and then elsewhere because Hamilton is not a guy to uh, take that lying down. The other thing that happens, uh, because of the panic and the, and the, and the stock bubble, uh, Jefferson wins, uh, his party wins the elections of 1792. Without that happening, George Washington is able to maintain, uh, his, uh, vision for the federal government for the rest of his, uh, term, uh, or basically for his second term and can build a navy early and do lots of other things that George Washington wants to do, all of which are generally sound, positive developments. Now, at some point, Wall Street is going to have another horrible blow-up crisis, I suspect, with all that uh, European money flowing in. And if William Dewar is still involved, he's going to overreach himself because that's what he does. Possibly as a result of the um, – there was a a global um, uh, financial uh, crisis, not a big one, but a a recognizable one in 1802 and 1803. Uh, And then there was another one, obviously, in the 18-teens and 1820s that was kind of a beginning of a depression. We didn't notice it in America because – we, uh, <laughs> we'd lucked out. Um, but the rest of the world uh, got fairly badly hit. Then 1837 is the first real global crisis. One of those is going to come along and, and knock the struts out from under it. But for the first 20 years, 30 years, Dewar's plan is going to look really sound and really smart. And the fact that there's no formal stock exchange mechanism and the fact that, uh, William Dewar is touching government money is not going to be immediately, obviously terrible until much later. So I suspect either. There are time speculators who are attempting to make fat bank off of European uh, money for American credit, or it is someone who likes the idea of Hamiltonian uh, industrialism, a a corporatist who wants to have the federal government out there building factories and things, um, which is uh, not an immediately risible notion, although obviously it it doesn't work as well as just letting uh, Andrew Carnegie do it. So so these are the forces of chronocash. Right. Uh, we know them as as well-known profiteers of uh, alternate timelines. Uh, you can tell them because they use the dollar sign as the S in cash, which is always a D class A. So right. what is the intervention that uh, Chrono Cash makes to allow uh, William Doerr's plan to uh, succeed uh, until you come and undo it? What I believe Chrono Cash probably does is intervene to allow Dewar to float that first bunch of shorts 
so that he doesn't have to go to Alexander Hamilton and ask for, because I thought for a while that they were trying to suborn Alexander Hamilton, but obviously if they were trying to do that, uh, they wouldn't have wanted Hamiltonian, uh, that, that risks their whole Hamiltonian, uh, policy, uh, success. So I think what they do is they just float Dewar the cash to carry him over that crisis point so that he's basically able to, uh, the, the Ponzi scheme works out. Uh, the only people who lose money are the small investors that no one cares about. His big, rich uh, partners all make out well enough. Dewar winds up with Bank of the United States credit, which he can use to uh, pawn off uh, the, the the noisier of his creditors and can move on uh, at the end of that uh, of, of that scheme with European money uh, to pay off all of the right. Problems. And so they basically they they get a bunch of gold from the Vault of Croesus right. and yeah. some uh, ancient Egyptian artifacts and covertly sell them off in order to raise the cash. And that, of course, is another thing that Time Incorporated uh, deprecates. So they succeed in uh, allowing his initial short to work. How do you then uh, undo uh, what they've done? Well, I mean, the the simple way is to go back in time and uh, distract William Dewar or distract Mrs. Dewar. Uh, Mrs. Dewar liked the high life. Uh, she liked to boogie. She liked to uh, party down. She believed that her father was a, a British lord. Uh, he may also have believed it. Um, he called himself Lord Sterling or a Scottish Lord, which is almost as good, even better in some cases. Uh, the British, uh, agreed to disagree. Um, and, but she would drive around New York with, uh, the Sterling arms on her coach. They would have sumptuous dinner parties where they would serve 15 different wines. I think Mrs. Dewar is the, is the doorway in here. Get Mrs. Dewar some, uh, some fancy hock. Some lovely Madeira, a couple of, uh, bottles of the brand new champagne that is just coming off, uh, the, uh, the, the vineyards there in France. They've just invented it. Uh, let her, um, uh, sample some of that fun. And, uh, Mrs. Dewar's, uh, got me in there changing her husband's, uh, records to indicate that, oh, no, that wasn't quite enough. He is in fact screwed. And that first, uh, lump uh, of specie, as they called it back in the day, the gold, only served to get him into that trouble. He winds up going to Hamilton, you know, uh, a, a week later or two weeks later, instead of never. Hamilton again says, what did I tell you last time about getting caught? And um, uh, the rest of the ugly picture goes on as, as it does. Right. So that after all of this kerfuffle, the big difference in the time stream is that uh, Mrs. Doerr uh, now has owned a couple of uh, golden uh, masks of sarcophagi uh, that mm-hmm. she didn't own before. Uh, right. She obviously diverted some of the uh, the gold to her own purposes, and that's uh, a pretty minor shift in in the time stream. Exactly. There's there's uh, there's some lovely artifacts now in the New York uh, uh, Museum of Natural History that weren't there before, and um, uh, people are like, "Oh goodness, what lovely gold uh, sarcophagus masks! Wherever did they come from?" And the curator says, well, we don't really know, but the, the provenance uh, is unknown. Yes, is unknown. Uh, well, I think uh, having uh, seen the time stream uh, disturbed and then mostly put back in order, we can declare uh, another podcast successfully achieved and uh, uh, plot uh, our schemes um, with those aforementioned, our, our own suitcases full of money, which, as we mentioned, uh, we'll undoubtedly get to keep for our next episode. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Stack up entirely authentic bank drafts alongside such backers as... Samuel Hawley. Steve Sigety. Brian Thomas. Yadge from Edinburgh. And Ash Jackson is the Scroll Bard. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Airudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. The glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky is now a t-shirt. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.